So as we get started this morning, let me get my prop that everyone kept asking, hey, why is that up there uh, behind, the, uh, behind the stage? Now, you may have seen some of these signs on the sidewalk between the buildings. That was not a sermon illustration. We actually do have a water problem between the buildings. So if you walked between the buildings and there was a wet sidewalk, that's a sprinkler system issue, not a sermon illustration. This one is for a sermon illustration. This morning, as we think about Mark chapter 9, I hope you'll keep that image, this image, in your mind because it's going to be what we talk about as we go along. What happens in our Christian walk? What happens in trying to follow Jesus when we face these tripping hazards? I was going to show you a couple of videos of tripping hazards online, but, and let me be honest, they're pretty funny, but it just didn't, it didn't seem to be the right fit uh, on, on Sunday morning, so I'll let you find those on your own later. The, the hard thing about tripping hazards is inevitably they affect the most vulnerable among us. You know, we can laugh about funny tripping videos, and there are some funny ones out there, but it can be really serious. If you're older in life, if you've got little ones, if you're struggling to get around, please, 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 nobody go home and apply the sermon by tripping on your way out of here, okay? That would, that would be exactly what would happen to me as we would talk about this this morning and then someone would go and accidentally have that happen. All of us have the ability to be walking along and the carpet just jumps up and gets you. Like you have no idea how you tripped. You were sure you were doing fine and then the carpet gets you and you end up tripping. What we're doing this morning as we look at this passage of Jesus leading his disciples on this path, we want to become really good at identifying what are the tripping hazards in my Christian walk? What can stand in the way? Mark chapter nine, verse 30. Look how it begins here. It says in Mark chapter nine, verse 30, they went on from there and passed through Galilee. Again, thinking about the background of this passage. Up to this point, Jesus has been doing different miracles, he's been doing different ministry with his disciples around the Sea of Galilee. And then earlier in chapter 9, he begins to take them up north. It begins at the end of chapter 8. It goes in the beginning of chapter 9. He takes them way up north. And you have the story of Peter confessing Jesus as Lord, as Christ at Caesarea Philippi. And then you have the story of the transfiguration that happens way up there near modern-day Syria. And then Jesus begins to lead his disciples back south. And he's leading them to Jerusalem. He's taking them on this journey from way up north, ultimately what will lead to the cross. Verse 31, well, middle of 30 and then into 31. He didn't want anyone to know what he was doing, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. Jesus as they're going on this journey, the disciples don't fully understand what's in front of them, but he's gonna take this journey from way up north where he has revealed to them who he truly is and, and what it means to believe in him and confess him as Lord, and then he's gonna take them south toward Jerusalem where ultimately he will die and then be raised. The main point that stands over the end of Mark chapter nine is on the next screen in front of you, and it's the fact that Jesus is leading his disciples on the way. This is a key phrase in the Gospel of Mark. It's the name of this sermon series we're going through. Jesus is leading them on the way to the cross and to the resurrection. 
And here's the key. You say, what's the big deal about that? That's a good question to ask. What's the big deal about that? The big deal about that is the journey to the cross is going to prepare them for the cross and is going to prepare them for how they will live after the cross. This is not a random trip. He is taking them on this journey with a very clear purpose, and he's going to teach them, and he's going to show them what it looks like to follow him. So he is preparing them through this journey for life after the cross. It's not just the destination, it's the journey that matters in this process. And it's true in our own lives. God shapes us through the journey of following Jesus. Give you a little illustration about this, about the journey versus the destination. And it will not take you long for those of you who know my wife and I, to, uh, who, who know us, to, to see the difference here. If we're trying to get from point A to point B, let's say we're traveling from when we lived in Mississippi along the Gulf Coast going to New Orleans with our family. Amanda's idea of that trip is, Owen, get on the interstate, go absolutely as fast as possible, maybe just a little bit above the speed limit, not too much, and get us there. My idea of that journey is let's take every back road we can find. Like, let's go through the little fishing villages, and let's go on these little side highways, and let's go that way. I realized after the fact, the reason that that type of journey was not good for Amanda is because all I was doing was driving, and she had three kids that she was trying to navigate in in the van. Also, that's just her personality. Like, let's just get there as fast as we can. My idea of getting there was let's take this, we called it growing up the scenic route. Let's take the scenic route. Like, let's go on the side highways, and whenever we get there, we'll, we'll be fine. It's the journey, not just the destination. And Jesus is taking his disciples on this journey, and on the journey, he's going to show them what it means to be his followers. Verse 32, what do we find out about them? They did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. And so they came to Capernaum. This has kind of been home base. And when he was in the house, so he's in this private setting, he's going to teach them in a private setting, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. So imagine this. Jesus has shown his disciples his greatness, And now he's going to take them on this journey down to Jerusalem, ultimately to the cross. And as they're walking along the path, he can hear them bickering in the background. Those of you who have gone on trail uh, hikes with your kids, you know this feeling. Like we're out in nature, we're really going to enjoy this family time together, and all you hear behind you is arguing about, about what's going on. You're like, okay. I'm not going to ruin the hike for myself. I'm going to wait till we get home, and then we'll address what was happening on the hike. Jesus gets to the house, and he's teaching the disciples, and he's asking this question, hey, what were you guys arguing about back there? And what do we find out that they were arguing about? Well, the end of verse 34 said they were arguing about who was the greatest. Tripping hazard number one in following Jesus, the need to be great. Here's the disciples. They've experienced the transfiguration where Jesus reveals his glory. They've come to understand more of who Jesus is, not all of it, but more, and all they can think about is if Jesus dies, who's going to be great? Who's going to be in charge? Who gets to be first of the disciples? I'm going to be the greatest disciple there ever was. Everybody's going to recognize me. When it comes to following Jesus, the desire to be the greatest, the desire for popularity, 
the desire for power, the desire for platform, this desire to be recognized, to get credit, is a tripping hazard in coming to understand who Jesus truly is. That when we are called to follow Jesus, it's not about our greatness, it's about his greatness. And the message of the gospel is that when we come to him, we don't come to him with our strength, with how great we are, we come to him with our weakness and realizing how much we need him to work in our life. And so what prevents people from coming to Jesus in the first place, sometimes it's just the pride that says, I can't lay down my pride. I I can't come to recognize how much I need the Lord. And when you're a Christian, when you're a follower of Jesus, one of the things that's gonna get in the way of that journey of following Jesus is if you constantly have to be great, if you constantly have to be recognized, if you constantly want positions of power, And you're like, well, Christians don't struggle with that. Let me help you with that. (laughs) That is a challenge. That is a challenge that that Christians face. We face it in the church, like really subtle ways. We want to be the great church. Like we want to be the church that gets the recognition, that has the platform. Christians are tempted by this with political power. Like if I can get in a position of power or influence or, or platform, I want to have credit for something. I want to be the goat. I want to be the greatest of all time. Like no, no one's ever been a greater Christian than me. Those things sneak into our heart in a really dangerous way, and they will trip us up. And, and Jesus has a different path. Verse 35, what's the path of Jesus? The path of Jesus is if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. If you want to follow Jesus, what does it look like to be his kingdom? The last will be first. Your calling is to serve. How did Jesus come? He came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The calling of the Christian journey is to serve others, not to be the greatest. Verses 36 and 37. He took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking this child in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. I just love that we get this passage of scripture on the same morning that we have parent-child dedication. Like just the image of these moms and dads up here, these grandmas up here holding these children, how these children are received and valued. What's going on in these verses? Well, remember, in the ancient world, It was almost the complete opposite of our world, where in our world, children become the center of our lives. (laughs) Children set our schedules, children determine our budgets, children are at the center of the picture. In the ancient world, how was it? Children were on the edges. They were to be seen, well, not seen and not heard on top of that. They were considered socially insignificant. So the image here of receiving a child, what's that imagery? It's the image of receiving someone who doesn't have anything to contribute, who doesn't have social standing, who doesn't have power, who doesn't have connections, and when you receive that person, you are living out what it means to follow Jesus. Because when you receive someone who's not important, someone who's struggling, someone who lives on the edge of society, you are receiving Jesus, who he is and what he has come to do. This means that in a church, It is not our job, and it is not our priority to reach those who have the most to give us. 
Now, if God brings someone who has money or social standing or any of those things, we receive them in the name of Jesus and we love them and point them toward Jesus. But in a church, if we're not careful, we can get into a situation where we want to reach someone who has social influence or has power or has money because of what they can do for us. And that is not the way of Jesus. The way of Jesus says, those who are last will be first. And your calling is to serve those who don't have anything that they can give you in return. Receive these children, receive these who are on the edge of society, and do the work I called you to do. Verse 38, get to the second tripping hazard. Verse 38, John said to him, I gotta warn you here, the disciples don't make any progress. Like, it's not looking good for them. John said to him, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. I know this is not in your Bible, but if you had a Bible that had emojis in it, this is like Jesus face palming at this moment. He's like, oh my word, you guys aren't getting it all. What had Jesus sent out his disciples to do just before this in Mark's gospel? He had sent them out to drive out demons and they weren't able to do it. They, they couldn't do this work. And so now, here's somebody else doing the work, somebody else doing the ministry, and the disciples are trying to stop them. Why? Because they were not part of our club. <laughs> they weren't part of our group. They weren't connected to our church or, or our denomination. Tripping hazard number two is the need to be special. The need to be special. This is the idea that if God was to bring a revival in another church, and incredible things are happening in that church, and tons of people are coming to Jesus, and God's working in a really powerful way, is our first response to celebrate what God is doing over there, or is our first response to feel bad or jealous that we weren't the ones who experienced that? Oh, that's hard, <laughs> that's hard. because. Every bit of our human flesh comes up and we start to feel jealous or we start to compare ourselves with others or we start to say things like, well, God can't work through that group of people. Friends, if we put our lives or our church or our denomination at the center of the kingdom of God and say only through this group can God work, we have missed what it means to follow Jesus because sometimes God will work through people that aren't quite like us. They'll work through another denomination the power of God is able to happen through the Southern Baptist Convention, and the power of God works through other churches as well. The power of God can work through a house church or can work through a mega church. The power of God can work through our senior adults in Branson today and can also work through our student ministry when they go to school tomorrow. God's power isn't always going to work through your life or my life or our church, but the power of God is going to go forward. And what's our response there? It's to celebrate. It's to celebrate that God's power is at work, even though it may not be through us. Look at the next verse. Verse 39, what does Jesus say? Don't stop that person. No one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. Now you might see a verse like that and say, wait a second. Isn't there another place in the Bible where that phrase is turned around? Yeah, there is. It has to do with the situation. What Jesus is saying is if there's someone who is doing the work of God 
and they're not an enemy, they're not turned away from God in worship, then we can receive them. In social media world of 2022, be so careful that we don't draw the circle too tightly about who God will work through. It's so tempting in our world today to draw a really tight circle about who God can use, and that's not our circle to draw. Now, is there a circle of what it means to be within the people of God? Absolutely there is. It, there is something that determines whether a person is a part of God's family or not, but you and I, we need to be really careful how we draw that circle, and we need to be ready to celebrate how God is working through other people. Verse 40, 41 Jesus says, truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink, you don't have to drive out a demon. If you just give a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ, that person by no means will lose his reward. Verse 42. Verse 42 says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. There's some imagery for you. <laughs> uh, if anyone says, yeah, the, the God of the New Testament, Jesus, is just this gentle God who never has hard things to say, take them to Mark chapter nine, and, and you see a different picture here. This is intense imagery here. This is the idea that if you cause someone else to stumble, and who specifically leads someone else away from Jesus? A child, someone who is, socially insignificant, someone who is on the fringes, if you cause them to sin, that is serious business. And it would be better for you to be taken to the bottom of the sea than to have to stand before the Lord one day in judgment. How do we do this? How do we cause someone else to sin? How do we cause someone else to stumble and not continue in their Christian life? Well, there's some really extreme examples. You could think of something like spiritual abuse, or, or even physical abuse, there have been some awful things that have been uncovered in, in church situations over the years where people who were vulnerable, young children were taken advantage of. It'd be better to be at the bottom of the sea than to have to stand before the Lord in judgment because of something like that, that you would lead someone to no longer love the Lord or want to follow the Lord. But it can also happen through neglect. What does it mean cause someone to stumble, to cause someone to go into sin and go away from Jesus, sometimes it can happen simply by neglect, that we don't do what we've been called to do to lead them to Jesus. And at this moment, I want you to, to remember these parent-child dedications up here. Can we force our kids to have faith in Jesus? Can, can we force our kids to become Christians? No, we, we absolutely cannot. But what can we do? We can point them to Jesus. We can encourage them. We can set an example of the gospel with repentance and humility. We can do everything possible to lead them to know and love the Lord. That's the calling we've been given. And sometimes people will say, you know what, I, I just don't wanna pressure my kids in that way. I, I'll let them make their own spiritual decisions. And I'm, I'm gonna tell you right now, I'm the last one that needs to be giving parenting advice, okay? So I, I say this really, really carefully. But our calling in the Lord is not to leave our kids open-ended when it comes to faith. Our calling in the Lord is to point them to Jesus. Again, we can't control them. 
We can't force them, but we absolutely have a responsibility to show them the gospel, to tell them the gospel, to put forward an example of what it means to know and love the Lord. We have that responsibility. To neglect that responsibility is to put them in a situation to sin, to stumble, to fall away from the Lord. We're not gonna go down that road. Number four, actually let's look at verse 43 first and we'll get into number four. Verse 43, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Well, there you go, there's a Bible verse for you. Uh, If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. These are some hard verses this morning. That same imagery is used in verse 45 and verse 47. If your hand causes you to sin in verse 43, your foot causes you to sin, your eye causes you to sin. If there's something that is leading you to sin, leading you away from the Lord, get rid of it. Tripping hazard number four is causing yourself to stumble, causing yourself to sin. This is the idea that we begin to love and live for the things of this world, the things we can touch and feel and see. We begin to live for those things. We want to gain the whole world, but in the process, we lose our soul. We miss how serious sin is. Now, does this mean that you actually cut your hand off or your foot off or you draw your eye? No, it's not talking about that. It's not talking about self-mutilation. It's talking about take drastic action. If there is something in your life that is leading you away from the Lord, that's causing you to go into sin, get rid of it. Cut it off. Be done with it. These images of hand and foot and eye, What are they talking about? They're images in the ancient world and even our world today that have to do with sexual temptation and and sexual sin, so that's tied into it. But beyond that, it's just living for the things of this world. It's saying what my hands do, where my feet take me, and what my eyes look at are those things leading me toward Jesus or away from him. What my hands do, where my feet take me, and what my eyes see Do they lead me to Jesus or do they lead me away from him? What are the consequences here? One path leads you to life and the other, it says here, leads you to hell. Now talk about an unpopular doctrine and an unpopular thing in our world today. And the concept of hell, it's been abused and misused, but it's not in our right to get rid of this just because we don't like it. The reality of God's word is that there is a path that leads to eternal life and there's a path that leads to hell, to eternal separation from God. And again, I realize, I realize there's nothing popular about that, but we are gonna be guided by God's word and what we understand to be life and death consequences to whether our life is devoted to the Lord or we are living for ourselves in the things of this world. What's our response to that? Well, verse 48 has a really interesting phrase at the end. Verses 49 and 50, I'm gonna get to tonight with the 5 p.m. evening service, but verse 48, I want you to see here. Verse 47 in the middle, it picks up there in the middle of verse 47. It says, it's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Now, I know it's easy to overlook this in your Bible, but you might have a note for verse 48 
that tells you that that wording comes from Isaiah chapter 66, it's even better than that. Verse 48 is the very last verse in the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament. The book of Isaiah in the Old Testament is often called the gospel message of the Old Testament. It's a book of salvation and God's judgment, and Mark loves Isaiah. In your New Testament, in the Gospel of Mark, he's constantly drawing from Isaiah to make these points. And here, where he's talking about a way that leads to salvation and a way that leads to eternal separation from God, he draws the very last verse from Isaiah's book to say, this is what I've been talking about. This is why this matters. There is hope for salvation, but there's a lot of things that can trip you up along the way. So what's our response? Our response is to turn to Jesus, to repent of our sins and turn to the one who through the cross took the power and penalty of sin that was due us. On the cross, Jesus defeated sin and evil and brokenness in this world, and through the resurrection, he defeated the power of death, and there is hope for us, not because we got our lives together, but because of what Jesus did for us, that he did for us what we could never do for ourselves. And so as we go on this journey, as we think about what it means to follow Jesus, our hope is not found in getting our lives together, our hope is found in turning to the one who gave his life for us. That we would know that there is life and salvation through Jesus. And so as you go in your life, if you are not a Christian, what keeps you from following Jesus? What are those tripping hazards? You might see some of these signs this week and it makes you think, what keeps me from becoming a Christian? What keeps me from wanting to follow Jesus? If you're already a Christian and you are struggling in life right now, like your Christian walk is not going well, you don't get excited about coming to church, you haven't read your Bible in a long time, it's just, it's a struggle right now in your Christian life. What's causing you to stumble? What's causing you to struggle on that path? And this morning, that you would turn your eyes back to Jesus. And we wanna help you do that as we gather to celebrate the Lord's Supper together that we come in our brokenness and our sin and we remember what Jesus has done for us. When I talk to kids about baptism, one of the questions I ask them is, how many times in your life are you supposed to be baptized? Now, sometimes there's confusion and things will happen, but they always will get the answer once. I'm supposed to be baptized one time. That's the starting line. And God might do some really cool things in my life later on, but I'm not gonna be rebaptized every time something cool happens. And then I'll ask them the question, how many times do you take the Lord's Supper in your life? And they never really know how to answer that question exactly, but I tell them, I hope it's hundreds of times. In fact, I hope it's thousands of times that all throughout your life you're gathering with the church to remember what Jesus has done for you. And so we're gonna do that together this morning. At Emmaus, when we take the Lord's Supper, we invite you to come to these tables and you're gonna take two cups that are stacked together and go back to your seat, hold those cups, and we'll take the elements together. If you're not a follower of Jesus, there's no embarrassment in not taking these elements. Taking these elements does not take your sin away. It's a reminder of what God has done for us. If you're not a follower of Jesus, use this time to think, 
What's God doing in my life? Where, where's he leading me to go? And then after we take the Lord's Supper, we're gonna sing a final hymn together and be dismissed. And at that dismissal, if you need someone to pray for you, if you have questions about faith, that you would be able to come here to the front and we would love to pray for you. Let me pray for us right now and we're gonna have this time of worship together. Father, thank you for how much fun this Sunday morning has been together. God, it brings me so much joy to think about these parents and little kids on stage. God, the work that you're doing, the weight that we feel as parents about wanting to raise our kids in the Lord, wanting to point them toward Jesus, wanting to be patient with God's work in their lives, knowing that happens at different times and different ways for different kids. But God, these families are gathered this morning because they trust you and they want their kids and their grandkids to know about you. And God, I pray that as we follow Jesus, we know there are things along the way that want to make us stumble, that want to make us trip. God, help us to be aware of that and help us to trust in your power to guide us through those. We don't have to be the greatest. We don't have to be special. We definitely don't want to cause others to stumble. And God, we don't want ourselves to be drawn into sin. We want to follow Jesus. And I pray that this Lord's Supper, this worship here together, would give us strength to do that. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.